0: Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches, wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Welcome to our forum assembly. I'm Shane Reese and I serve as BYU's academic vice president. Today we are pleased to welcome Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, who will address us on this year's forum theme, Becoming a Beloved Community. Reverend Dr. William Barber II has committed his life to building beloved communities. He is president and senior lecturer of Repairers of the Breach, an organization that invites us as individuals and as communities to care for all our neighbors. Rev. Barber is a bishop with the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries and is also a pastor in North Carolina of the Greenleaf Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Recognized for his activism and inspiring work on behalf of 140 million poor, Rev. Barber delivered the homily for the 59th inaugural prayer service for President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. In 2017, Reverend Dr. Barber spoke at the Vatican City in response to Pope Francis's encyclical, Laudato Si, on care for our common home. Just last month, again at the Pope's invitation, Dr. Barber taught at the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. In 2018, Reverend Dr. Barber spoke before the fifth Global Union World Congress, during which time he was added to the Black Achievers Wall at the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, England. Serving as the President of North Carolina NAACP from 2006 to 2017, and on the National NAACP Board of Directors from 2008 to 2020, Reverend Barber led the Moral Monday movement that lasted for over four years, taking a stand for voting rights, universal health care, and living wages. Rev. Dr. Barber earned a Master of Divinity from Duke University and his doctorate in Public Policy and Pastoral Care from Drew University. He was formerly a Mel King Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he currently serves as a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary. Rev. Dr. Barber has received 15 honorary doctoral degrees. He is the author of several books, including... Forward Together, and the Third Reconstruction. Reverend Barber's life and work sets a pattern for how we, the people, how we as a people, build beloved communities. He is married to Rebecca McLean Barber, and they are the parents of five children. Reverend Barber has continued the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by reviving and expanding the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. As co-chair, Reverend Barber seeks solutions informed by his Christian covenants to systemic racism, poverty, and ecological challenges. This movement has organized millions of people in peaceful advocacy for underrepresented people across the nation.
1: I worked 41 years in the coal mines. I have black lung, and it's just unfathomable what these poor coal miners have to go through in order to get what they have worked for and deserve. At one time, poverty was a temporary condition. You were on a down slope for a minute, but you could bounce back up. We can't bounce back up today. It's permanent. We're not going back to the factory and building cars and trucks like we once did. A job working at McDonald's or the grocery store doesn't it pay enough for one person to live.
2: We work a 40-hour work week. Still not enough. Living from paycheck to paycheck. Rent is $600 a month. We got water bill, electricity. I do this for my kids, and it it hurts. I'm 46 years old. I've lived in poverty here in West Virginia every day of my life.
0: And I'm working. I am working poor with a bachelor's degree. I'm doing the best I can with what I have.
2: We were in the height of mass water shutoffs. This entire neighborhood um, was shut off all at one time.
1: I saw all my neighbors get shut off right in front of me. It was kind of terrifying. I'm 42 years old, and I'm a cashier at McDonald's. I had lost my house. You're welcome to come inside. There's a lot of people that are living in their cars. You never notice until you're in the same situation. I don't have stuff to give my children. I'm paying all these bills, and they need school clothes and stuff. And they be asking me for it. I can't give some. Now I'm a Kansas farmer's wife. Kansas farmers are committing suicide. Why? They're usually in debt, up to their eyeballs. I see poverty in my own community. You know, there's a 70% unemployment rate in my in the reservation right now. Here in New York City, we're home to millionaires and billionaires, and we have so many people living in the streets, and that's just not right.
0: I've been a, a homeless veteran twice. I uh, lived in a shelter.
1: I've been living down here since I was 17. My only chance of going to college was joining the army. We are demanding that we stop the war on our poor.
2: 700,000 people in this country are on the verge of losing
1: their food stamps. This budget calls for shrinking the social safety net programs like Medicare. I just know that everything that's happening to us isn't right. I'm in stage five of kidney disease. I fell behind on my health care and they canceled my health insurance and they told me uh, I have to wait until open enrollment. There's only five stages of kidney disease and I'm in the fifth stage. And murder, it's murder, you know, if you ask me, it's murder. I lost a son to the imbalance
0: and I lost a daughter. No parent should have, in America, should have to bury their pet, their child
1: for a lack of medical medication I-
2: my God. Oh, no more. My God. Amen. My God, Kevin. I'm well.
1: I'm well. Because well. <laughs> well. my babies ain't no more. How many more babies? How many more children? No more. <laughs> I want you to know that when hands that once pick cotton join hands of Latinos, join hands of progressive whites, join faith hands, and labor hands, and Asian hands, and Native American hands, and poor hands, and wealthy hands with a conscience, and gay hands, and straight hands, and trans hands, and Christian hands, and Jewish hands, and Muslim hands, and Hindu hands, and Buddhist hands, when we all get together. We are an
2: instrument of redemption. When we join hands, we can revive and make sure that the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and equal protection under the law is never taken away from anybody. So I got a question. Are the rejected ready to
1: revive and declare that this land is your land, this land is my land, this land is our land, and together from the State House to the White House, the rejected are going to demand that this nation never give up on being one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all.
2: And eternal God, hold us, help us, hear us, and use us in this moment by your love and by your grace. Amen. I'm so humbled and honored to be here at Brigham Young University, to your president, to all of the students. The faculty, the staff, to the Utah Poor People's Campaign, to my new friend and brother John Rosenberg, to Michelle, to Samantha, and to Michael, and to Professor Gibbs that was so gracious yesterday to welcome this country preacher in a sociology class and I'm glad it wasn't test day. I heard you all pretty hard around here on test day, but it's good to be with you. I'm so thankful. And today I want to talk about why we must have a Poor People's Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington to declare new possibilities in America in this moment of our moral and national crisis if we are serious about community. Now, I come here today to share with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I come as a fellow faith traveler who takes seriously the word of God and the deep moral values represented by various faith traditions, the commitments to love and truth and justice and care for one another as a matter of faith. I come from a family where on my mother's side there were more than 300 combined years of pastoral ministry in the Pentecostal holiness and apostolic faith traditions. On my father's side, there were more than 500 years of combined ministry in the Congregationalist and, and Church of Christ Disciples tradition. I have running through my genealogy the blood of freeborn mulattoes in the South. Tuscaroing Indians and and Caucasians as well as former slaves from Georgia and South Carolina. My paternal grandfather was a preacher and a barber and a woodsman from North Carolina and my maternal grandfather was a coal miner from West Virginia and a holiness preacher who then went to Indiana and benefited from the New Deal public works program. And with all this religious heritage I ran away from God and ran right into God (laughs) by God's spirit love and grace I was drawn back and called to serve as a minister a pastor a bishop and I've learned to own all of the faith traditions that have helped make me and helped make my people as for me I'm both a conservative and a liberal I want to conserve the great teachings of Jesus about love, grace, truth, and and justice, and I want to liberally spread them everywhere. So if you want to know who William Barber is, I'm a liberal, conservative, Congregationalist, Pentecostal, apostolic, faith-believing, love-following, grace-saved, Holy Spirit-empowered servant who's been called to declare to potentates and presidents and people that yes, God is real. And when I when I read the great spiritual truths of the Bible like Luke 4 The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Or Isaiah 10, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. Or Amos 5, when God says that I want justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Or Ezekiel 16, when it says in verse 49, now this was the sin of the nation of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them. Or Matthew 25, when Jesus clearly says, Inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, the stranger, the poor, the sick, you've done it unto me. Now, I'm also no great scholar of the Book of Mormon, but I studied comparative religions and I take your faith very seriously. I've listened close enough to your traditions to know that in addition to the scriptures, I've shared, their values in your holy text, like the one in Mosiah four. Perhaps thou shalt say, the man has brought upon himself his misery. Therefore, I will stay my hand and will not give unto him my food, nor impart unto him my substance, that he may not suffer for his punishments are just. But I say to you, says the spirit, O man, whatsoever doeth, whosoever doeth this, the same hath great cause to repent. And except he repent of that which he hath done, he perisheth forever and hath no interest in the kingdom of God. For behold, are we not all beggars? Do we not all depend upon the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have, for both food and raiment and gold and for silver, and for all the riches which we have of every can? Are we not all beggars? And when I read our Constitution of the United States, and I look at the call to establish justice as a first principle. And I look at the glaring realities of systemic racism and poverty and ecological devastation and underfunding of education and the denial of health care and the overfunding of the war economy and the false and distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism, coupled with notions of white supremacy. It is clear to me that we face a crisis of possibility, a crisis of civilization and a crisis of democracy. It is clear to me, it is clear to the Poor People's Campaign, it's clear to my co-chair, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. it is clear to the Utah Poor People's Campaign that we must recognize that we have some crises from which we must seek redemption from. We must believe we have in God the spiritual power to turn in new directions toward a more beloved community. In this movement, and in this moment, we have an obligation to bear witness to new possibilities and not just to accept things as though they have to be. We can see our present crisis in the conversations and debates that we're having, even in the middle of COVID. I'm so surprised of how much grace we're not seeing in the midst of COVID, particularly from many of our political leaders. After 20 plus million lost jobs and millions infected and over 750,000 deaths and 8 million more people falling into poverty, while billionaires made over a $2 trillion during COVID so far. Even in this moment, while people are suffering, suffering more, suffering who were already suffering, excuse me. Before COVID, some in high places want to debate about top lines in legislative packages or whether we should make the poor and low wage people work before we help them or whether or not we, the richest nation in the world, can afford. And in a time when we have more wealth than ever before in the history of the world, some want to limit. Debates to which cuts would bring the total cost down for a particular program rather than deal with the bigger question of whether we as a people believe it is possible for the richest nation in the history of the world to provide for and invest in a way of being community that meets everyone's needs. Far too many even now want to ask the possibility, strangling question, how much will it cost to do this? Rather than asking the truly moral question, how much will it cost us not to? As Nobel Peace Prize winning economist, Joseph Stiglitz says, this should be the first question of a moral economy. How much will it cost? And how many more people will be hurt if we don't change our ways. We're too often caught up in commentary about the probability of a policy passing the Senate to to, to recognize this crisis of possibility. Take for example, the current debate in Washington DC over the so-called Build Back Better. And I don't have, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I come today as a moral agent. For some, they look at what's being done And some of it's good, very good. Child tax credit, universal pre-K, investments in climate, investment in Medicaid, affordable housing. Yeah, those things are good. Investments in elder care. But there's so much that people leave out as though we can leave out certain parts of the community. But even this policy, we cannot claim that this proposed investment is an end all and be all, or even that it's uh, the transformative vision of our faith and our deepest moral vision to address the needs of the least of these. The truth is, it is far below the $10 trillion that the Economic Policy Institute says we need to address the major inequalities that existed before COVID and have been exacerbated during COVID. My brothers and sisters, my young brothers and sisters, we have work to do and you're not the leaders of tomorrow, you must be a part of the moral voice of today. Because our debates in this country too often aren't starting with the real needs and and real needs of people and values. They began with first the lie about scarcity. Yes, yes, Mr. President, the lie about scarcity. I was speaking a few months ago with the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on Poverty and he shared with me that we do not have a scarcity of resources and money in the world. That's a known fact. We do not have a scarcity of ideas about how to address the real needs right now. We could address and pay for addressing every issue, but what we have is a scarcity of collective moral consciousness, which has thrust us into a crisis of possibility and a crisis of civilization. This is why when your faith and deep moral commitments call you to stand side by side with poor and low wealth people, you can not accept the refrain, we can't find the money or we don't want to do that because they are just lazy. They are taking advantage of us. Recently, when I was at the Vatican meeting with economists and philosophers and theologians of different faith, Pope Francis said this, today, we see that the world has never been so rich despite such abundance, poverty, and inequality persist and grow. And in these times of opulence, when it should be possible and is possible to end poverty. The powers of one-track thinking say nothing about the poor, the elderly, the, the migrants, the unborn, and the seriously ill. Most of the time they work hard to keep them invisible and treat them as disposable. Did you know... That many of the people we have decided to call essential workers during COVID, before COVID, we called them service workers. During COVID, we found out, oh, they're actually essential. And that most of them are poor and low wealth people who were the first to go to work, the first to get infected, the first to get sick, and the first to die so that the rest of us could have some semblance of normality in the midst of all of this. We treat them as disposable and expendable. And they feel that way. I listen to them all the time. Because when they listen to these debates, they say nobody's talking about us. How is it that we see from some in the midst of COVID, when you would think if there was ever a time people were going to be merciful and graceful, it would be now. If there's ever a time when every one of us knows we've been around COVID somewhere, somehow, and if you didn't get infected and get sick and die, it's not because you're better than the people who died. It's not because we're better than the people who got sick. Maybe it's just some strange grace of God. And the question is really not why are you still here, but what are you going to do with your continuing reality? How is it that we see outright refusal to pass policies to address the crumbling infrastructure of people's daily lives? How is it that we see some who act like their goal when it comes to policies that would lift community is to do the least bit possible? How is it that we spent $21 trillion on war and militarism and militarization of our borders and our cities since 9-11. $21 trillion. And then we say in the midst of COVID, we cannot change our ways. What? How is it that we gave $2.3 trillion to COVID relief to businesses that didn't even have to prove that they were impacted by the pandemic or that they would keep their workers. And yet when it comes to the poor, we wanna put all kinds of restraints on them. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on this nation's poor and low wage workers and it has laid bare our crisis of possibility, civilization, and the crisis of democracy. And in the midst of this, there's some things we must do. First, we must tell the truth and put a face on this crisis of possibility and civilization if we are serious about the beloved community. You see, my brothers and sisters, before COVID ever hit, according to a report from the Mailman School of Public Health, 250,000 people died every year from poverty. 700 people a day. Notice I didn't say black or white or brown. I said people. People created in the image of God. Before COVID ever hit, there were 140 million poor and low wealth people in the nation. Here are the numbers, 52% of our children, 39 million, 41% of our elders, 21 million, 42% of men, 65 million, 45% of women, 74 million, 33% of white people, 66 million, 60% of black people, 26 million, 64% of Latino people, 38 million, 40% of Asian people, 8 million, 58% of native indigenous people, 2.1 million, before COVID ever hit. Over 32 million people made less than a living wage of $15 before COVID ever hit. And we haven't raised the minimum wage in this country for 12 years since 2009. And yet we call low wage workers who make less than a living wage. And by the way, you ought to know that restaurant workers, waitresses, their minimum wage is $2.13 an hour plus tips. $2.13, and some people say it ought to stay that way. Here we are in a country where right today, today, despite the ways it's ignored, 2.5 to 3 million people are homeless or on the verge of homelessness every day. Poverty in this country, poverty. And in Utah, 36% of the people in Utah are poor and low income. A total of $1 residents, 46% of the children in this state, 40% of the women, 50% of black people, 60% of Latinx, and 35% of white people, 854,000 in Utah are poor and low wealth. Over 30,000 veterans in this state have incomes below $35,000, or 21% of the veteran population. In this country, in this state of Utah, 17% of the U.S. census tracts are at risk for being unable to afford water. 219,000 people benefit from food stamps. 250, and 149,000 children live in food insecure households. Right here in Utah, over 2,000 people are homeless Right here in Utah, you have to work 101 hours per week to afford a basic two bedroom apartment making minimum wage. 602,000 people in this state make under $15 an hour. That's 49%, almost 50% of the workforce. The 14th highest in all of the states in America. And the minimum wage here is 725 but one report says if we wanted to have a real living wage, it would be $25 an hour. We have to face this crisis that happened that was going on even before COVID and put the numbers together. 37 million people every day who go without health care and another 50 million are uninsured. Underinsured. Where people have to pray not to get sick because they can't afford treatment, even in the midst of COVID. Wouldn't you think, in the midst of COVID, the one thing we would at least do is say, we're gonna have universal health care for everybody? So many people don't have health care. There are 25 wealthiest nations in this country, and all of them but one offer some form of universal health care, and that's the United States. And we force elders. And preachers, even in the Latter-day Saints, to stand over and preach people's funerals and declare that they're going to heaven and and they may very well be. But as we preach those funerals, many times we're preaching funerals over people that should not be dead. God did not call them home. Policies took their lives. What does it look like? It looks like the four million families, not just in Flint, who can buy, get up every morning and buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. What does our crisis look like? It looks like 53 years after the Selma to Montgomery march, we have a greater attack on voting rights than we've seen since the civil rights era. 400 bills have been placed in, in, in 49 states to try to roll back voting rights. It's not about black people now. These bills will hurt women. They'll hurt college students. They'll hurt young people. They'll hurt black people. And we have a war economy where today in America, we spend 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on the war economy. Most of that money going to contractors, not to the veterans and the disabled ones. And we spend less than 16 cents of every discretionary dollar on education and health care. What we have in this crisis is the politics of rejection and policy violence against the poor that are still far too real. And then we have this distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism that does not follow the call of Jesus that asked when I was hungry, did you feed me? No, this distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism mixed with white supremacy preaches a false gospel of division and the building up of walls. And that that false gospel says so much about what God says so little And so little about what God says so much. And here we are. Rejection, poverty, broken heart, bruises, millions of people who've not been accepted are in our midst. This is the crisis of possibility, the crisis of democracy, the crisis of civilization. And it isn't just about the numbers. Did you see those names, those pictures on that video? Let me take you back to them. Danielle, who works 70 hours a week trying to survive on 725. A black man that cleans people's backsides in a medical facility and he can't even afford to go to that same medical facility. A white lady who's poor and low wealth, low wage worker, miner's wife in West Virginia, who organizes women in those hills every Monday to sell tacos so that they can build up a fund to help poor women with the needs during their menstrual cycles. Episcopal priests in Aberdeen, Washington. In a city of 16,000 human beings that has over 1,000 of them homeless, the zip code with the largest number of homeless white millennials is in Washington state, despite all the money of Microsoft and Amazon that's right around them. What about Kentucky, the coal miners, black and white, who suffer from black lungs? And if watch policies steal their pension, and like in Harlan County, one of the thirtieth poorest counties in the country. What about Callie Greer, who you heard wailing like Rachel wailed during the Christmas season when Jesus was first born? And the, and the, and the word says that there was a sound coming out of Rhema. Wailing because my children are no more. But Callie Greer watched her daughter die in her face because Alabama refused to expand Medicaid because they didn't like a president who happened to be black. What about people using underpasses in city after city as new forms of home. What about Pamela who I met whose children are on CPAC machines because predatory lenders tricked her into buying, legal predatory lenders, tricked her into buying a trailer that she couldn't afford and then put it in a place where the county refuses to even run the sewage to her yard and her home, but they run the sewage to the dog pound that's right across the street. Or in my own state of North Carolina, what about little Ezekiel, who spoke up for his daddy, Pastor Jose, who'd been in this country since 1985, and because of a little mistake on a form, he faced imminent deportation during the Trump administration. And they told him if he left the property of the church, they would take him. He's a pastor. They would snatch him from his family and his church. And for four years, he had to live in the church to keep from being snatched out of this country. Oh, come with me. When I close my eyes, I see Vanessa and her dad, Brother Winsley of the Apache Nation, who are fighting right now to preserve the Holy Lands because a multinational company wants to come on that reservation and steal their Holy Land, the place where their religion was founded. Imagine if somebody was trying to do that to your temple. To the facility that the Latter-day Saints want, what the fight would be. And yet it's going on right in this country. And politicians are supporting the multinational com- company over against indigenous people. What about Rosanne Eaton, who was 95 years old when she had to go to court and be the lead plaintiff to fight against voter suppression? And it took her four years to win. And when the courts, even the Supreme Court, looked at what the politicians had done, despite the fact that they said they were doing it to protect the vote, they found out it was racism with surgical intent. What about Amy, a poor woman, a teacher who's poor and low wage, who found out when her governor under pressure decided to raise money to pay t- raise the teacher pay, they didn't realize that he cut Medicaid and food stamps to do it. What about Pam Morrison and other miners' daughters who are fighting with all they have in West Virginia? They don't understand. They cry. They don't understand how they have a senator from the second poorest state in the country who's fighting every policy that would help the poor. Or I think about Leon, a veteran that I met in a camp who has a flag planted on the tree branch outside of the car that he sleeps in. And I asked him, why do you have that flag there? He said, Pastor, they allowed me to run billion dollar pieces of equipment in the military. But now that I've come home, I can't even flip a hamburger. And I wanted to fly the flag so that people could see what's happening underneath the flag. This is why. We must face this crisis and put a face on the crisis and we have to keep organizing and mobilizing and why we must have a mass poor people's low-wage workers assembly and moral march on Washington in this moment to face this crisis, to change the moral narrative in this country and to have a moral reset. So that the rejected of every race, along with people of faith and people of deep moral concern and advocates, and even the wealthy with a conscience, can help save the heart and soul of this nation. It grieves me. I've watched our country pass two trillion dollar tax cuts for the wealthy, but then fight investing a measly $1.9 trillion to help the poor over 10 years, which is less than 2%, or 0.2%, 0.3% of our national gross domestic product, which is $21 trillion a year. Something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Four hundred people in this country right now make an average of ninety-seven thousand dollars an hour. Three people have more money than the than the bottom fifty percent of America's com- combined. If you work minimum wage job, the, one of the wealthy. If you work the minimum wage job, you'd have to work seven million years at thirty thousand dollars a year to earn enough money that that person currently has. And I've been arrested in my life over 15 times. And one time, several of those times, was rested, standing, nonviolently praying with poor and low-wealth people that were simply saying to a corporation, why won't you just pay us a living wage? We must have. A Poor People's Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington in this moment to put a face on these numbers, to call for a moral reset and a change in our narrative so that the rejected of every race, along with people of faith and people of deep moral concern and advocates and even the wealthy with a conscience can help save the soul and the heart of this nation and this democracy and send a new vision to the world. And you need to understand, as I move to somewhat of a conclusion, in America, we didn't get here overnight. Dr. King was killed while working to organize the Poor People's Campaign. And when he was killed, an advisor went in to Richard Nixon, his name is Kevin Phillips, and he said, I have a strategy called the Southern Strategy. They wrote a memo, and on that memo they said, we must engage in positive polarization. If we're going to rule and control America, we must intentionally split the nation. Split it by using racism and classism and homophobia for the purpose of holding on to power. And Pat Buchanan went to, said, we must cut the country in half. And this strategy has been embraced and financed and charismatized and formulated over and over again with code words like entitlements and tax cuts. Billions of dollars have been put in it all for the sole purpose of power, the lust for power. There's also an economic policy that got us here. It's called trickle-down economics, the myth that says shape all policies to benefit the top. And if the people at the top are doing well, they'll let enough crumbs trickle down to everybody else. And then the lesser version is neoliberalism that readily talks about the middle class but says nothing about the poor. And with these economic philosophers shaping policies, the US economy has grown more than 18 times in the past 50 years from 1973 to 2016, Productivity went up 73%, but hourly compensation only went up 12%. From 1968 to 2017, the top 1% share of the economy nearly doubled. 400 of the wealthiest Americans earned more wealth than the bottom 64% of the U.S. population. 204 million people. And of these 400, only two are black, five are Latino And just three people had a combined wealth of two hundred and forty eight billion dollars, the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50 percent of this country. This intentional dividing and these misguided economic policies have us now in a position where 43 percent of the nation is poor and low wealth and increasing. And over the past 30 years, rents have gone up faster than income. Since 2010, the affordable housing stock has declined by 60%. In 2016, there was not a state or a county, Mr. President, in this nation where somebody earning a federal minimum wage of $7.25 or working the minimum wage of a, of a waiter at 2013 dollars could even afford a basic one-bedroom apartment. We must have. A mass poor people, low wage workers' assembly, and moral march on Washington in this moment to put a face on these numbers, to call for a moral reset so that the rejected of every race, along with people of faith and people of deep moral concern and advocates, and even the wealthy with a conscience can help save the heart and the soul of this nation and democracy because anything less will put us in grave jeopardy. Because what we're doing now is morally indefensible, it's constitutionally inconsistent, and it's economically insane. If we were to pay people a $15 minimum wage, it would pump $330 billion into the economy immediately. It would help everybody. Nobel Peace Prize winning economists were just awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for proving that raising the minimum wage to a living wage would not cost jobs and would not cause things to rise in prices. Do you know that every $1 invested in early childhood education saves $7 in reduced poverty? Do we realize this? Do we realize that one military contract from one military contractor could have paid for all the health insurance in the states that denied Medicaid expansion like Alabama where Caligria's daughter died? And so my brothers and sisters, we must have. If we are serious about the beloved community, a mass poor people's low wage workers assembly and a moral mo- march on Washington in this moment, not as a day, but as a declaration that we cannot accept this anymore. And not with nonviolence and love and truth. We are going to work to save the heart and the soul of this democracy, as well as call for the same around the world. Yes, we need something Latter-day Saints know a lot about. National repentance. We need a third reconstruction. There's no time to waste. There's no time to waste. We've got to stop this national move toward becoming a civil oligarchy and then move into an autocracy. It's the battle of our time. We got to move from policies that legislate evil and inequality, as Isaiah said, instead to policies that create good. And we have to build from the bottom up That's what Jesus said. The bottom up, the least of these is how nations save themselves. Even our constitution says that you must establish justice, not benevolence justice and then if you establish justice you can ensure domestic tranquility and if you want to hold on to domestic tranquility you have to provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare and then the 14th amendment that saved the constitution says you must make sure you have equal protection under the law it's time y'all it's time To make ending poverty a top legislative priority. It's time for poor and low wealth people who make up one-third of the electorate to say somebody's been hurting our people far too long and we won't be silent anymore. It's time. It's time to expand democratic participation. It's time to update our poverty measure and own the $140 million. It's time to protect constitutional rights. It's time to ensure legislation that seeks not just to address a little bit of poverty, but to end poverty and low wages. It's time to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. It's time to use the power even of deficit spending on the front end to meet the pressing needs of the $140 million in poverty and low wealth, and knowing that if we do it on the front end, we will benefit on the back end. It's time to guarantee quality health care for all. It's time to guarantee safe and quality housing for all. It's time to guarantee the right to water, clean water and sanitation to all. It's time to implement a federal jobs program to ensure good jobs and increase public investments in institutions in poor and low wealth communities, especially to deal with climate change. It's time to guarantee quality, safe and equitable public education for everybody. It's time to enact relief from student debt and medical debt and housing debt and utilities debt. It's time to enact comprehensive and just immigration reform in a nation of immigrants. It's time to ensure all the rights of indigenous people and tribal nations are protected. It's time to embrace a bold agenda to transform the economy from a climate chaos to a green renewable energy economy that prioritizes the poor and low-income frontline communities. It's time to study war no more and demilitarize our U.S. foreign policy. It's time to Cut the military budget by 10% and immediately put that money in lifting the poor and healthcare and education. It's time to end unjust mass incarceration and violent policing. It's time, it's time to stop killing in our communities. It's time, and it's a time more than for emails and text messages. We must move nonviolently in the hope and possibility of this democracy becoming a more perfect nation. And yes, yes. Yes, there must be a major moral movement, because when the remnant cries out, God in Amos chapter 5 says it this way in the Message Bible, I need some people who will go into the streets and lament loudly. Fill the malls and shops with the cries of doom. Weep loudly, not me, not us, not now. Enter the offices, the stores, the schools, the factories, the workplace. I need everybody that has a conscience to begin a general lament to say, this is not the best we can be. And when I hear them crying in the street, God says, then I'll make my visit. In the book of Amos, God tells the prophet, I need a remnant. I don't need everybody. I need impacted people. I need a remnant. I need a remnant to let the nation see their faces and hear their story. The remnant, the remnant, the rejected. They must lead the revival. And we must work with them. And then the New Testament says, if you want to turn nations upside down to right side up, you got to have a Pentecost. You got to have a moral Pentecost. Where even in the time of Caesar, the Bible says they were all on one accord. And when God gave them the spirit, They gave them power that was greater than Caesar and injustice, and they created with the Spirit a community where no one had any needs. The time has come, my brothers and sisters, for us to be the moral defibrillators of our time. You know what a defibrillator is, don't you? In a hospital when somebody has a bad heart somebody with a good heart has to call a code. And when they call a code, the team brings a defibrillator. And with that defibrillator, they shock the bad heart. And when they shock the bad heart, it has the power to revive the bad heart back to life. Well, in society, in every generation, we need moral defibrillators. Brigham Young University, we need some moral defibrillators. This is the only thing. This is the That has ever changed the nation. It's time for the remnant to shock the conscience of this nation. And today, only a revolution of the heart can save and revive this democracy and move us toward a beloved community. Because some issues, my brothers and sisters, are not left versus right or or, or, or Democrat versus Republican, but it's right versus wrong. And when we fight to secure labor policies and anti-poverty policies, we are reviving the heart of this democracy. When we develop tax policies, that no longer funnel all of our prosperity to the wealthy few. We are reviving the heart of this democracy. When we provide for every child, when we make sure that we have health care, when we expand families, when we insist on equal protection under the law, when we resist the proliferation of, of militarism, when we protect and expand voting rights and women's rights and LGBTQ rights and religious freedom and immigrant rights, we are reviving the heart of our. Revi- My daddy used to hold revivals. And sometimes he would cry out that the God we serve is a heart fixer and a mind regulator. I come by as a country preacher to say America needs to follow God. I stopped by this morning to say if we're going to push toward a more perfect union, we need some heart fixing in America. We need some heart fixing in the Congress. We need some heart fixing in communities. We need some heart fixing in state legislatures. We need a revival of our deepest moral values. And we must become moral defibrillators. In this room right now, we have more than Amos had. Jesus started with 12 disciples and, and maybe six faithful women. On Pentecost, there were 120. We have more than that in this room. In this room, we have more than the abolitionists had, more than the social gospel has had, more than the women's suffrage had, more than the labor rights movement had, more than MLK and Rosa Parks and white supporters had in Montgomery. I could go on, but every major moral movement only had a few people. When it begins, but look at what they did against all odds. There are thousands in this room and tens of thousands online. What if we all get together? What if we all get together by the spirit all over this nation, black and white and brown and Asian and native and young and old and gay and straight and Christian and Latter-day Saint and Muslim and Jews and even people not necessarily of a faith, but they believe in the moral art of the universe. What if we get together? Everybody that's known rejection, everybody that's been rejected. Rejected because of your gender, rejected because of your poverty, rejected because of your disability, rejected because of your education, rejected because of your race. What if we all get together and become the energy of a moral defibrillator in our time? And together with God, we shock this nation with the power of love. We shock this nation with the power of truth. We shock this nation with the power of grace. We shock this nation with the power of justice and the power of hope. And when we all get together, we who love to love when we all get together prayerfully and politically and socially and faithful I'm telling you change can come so I got a question as I go to my seat is there any moral power in this room is there a heart in this house called Brigham Young it seems like I feel a pulse out there is there a pulse here what if we all get together what if we all get together And we shock this nation until the poor are lifted and the workers are paid and the sick are insured and voting is guaranteed and unmerciful homelessness is ended and war is not pushed and promulgated and promoted and wrongful police killings are stopped and guns and drugs are out uh, uh, and and God's wisdom is embraced and land and air and water is not poisoned, and humanity is respected. What if we get together until the blood of the community is cultivated and children are protected and civil rights and labor? rights and human rights are never ne- neglected. i got a suggestion. Let's get together. Let's put all our energy together. Let's have a moral march on Washington. Let's believe in the beloved community. Let's refuse to give up on this democracy. Do I feel a pulse in here? Is there any anything- Justin, what a day, what a day, what a day, what a day. day.
0: listening to the recent speeches podcast presented by byu speeches please check out our other podcasts including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library as well as other byu speeches compilations on love and marriage overcoming adversity by study and by faith come follow me the prophet joseph smith and jesus christ our savior and redeemer go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information